Christianity is a wonderful, warm, embracing, inclusive uh, message to the world. And it stands alongside a highly offensive, uh, confrontational message in our world. Um, the good news, I mean, it's wonderful, it's, it's warm, it's embracing, it's inclusive. It's the message that God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. It's, it, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are invited to come and, and, and engage with Jesus. Love God and receive the full expression of his love to you and for you. If you and, and, and the invitation is to learn to walk with, with, with Jesus and to become in this the best possible you now. And you get to anticipate an eternity with God and with everyone who has come to love him through Jesus. Uh, this is the good news. It's, it's a wonderful, it's warm, it's embracing, it's inclusive. Everybody's invited and it stands alongside the bad news, which is highly offensive. It's a confrontational message. Christianity asserts that our sin and our sin nature and our sin behavior have separated us from God. It's become a breach. And if this enormous breach isn't gapped, what results is judgment against our sin. And that judgment leads to a terrible eternal consequence. That's this, this last statement that I'm going to begin to explore this morning. Judgment. Um, number one, is judgment really necessary? The second question we're going to chase down is, is what does the Bible say about the place where that judgment is affected? We call it hell. And, and then the final question is, is it ever too late? Um, that's the outline on our sermon notes. I'd encourage you that we've got hard copies here in the sanctuary. Um, you can download it from our website, okalliance.ca. If you've got our, our church app, it's two clicks away. Uh, you, you just go to... Make sure I get it right. You go to worship with us online and then the sermon notes are right there. Um, there are live links on that to every passage of scripture that I'm gonna reference this morning. Touch it, bam, you're there. Um, there are, there's a passage of scripture that I'd encourage you to consider memorizing as we hide God's word in our hearts. There's some questions on the back which um, will invite you to kind of reflect on some of the things that we're talking about together this morning through the course of your week, maybe over lunch with your family. Uh, dinner sometime this week. So the first question, is judgment really necessary? Just this week, I was sitting in, uh, in our vehicle in a parking lot waiting for Anne to come back out of a store. She popped in for a couple of minutes uh, to, to, to check a couple of things out. Guy came out from the, par from the shopping place um, to the vehicle, his vehicle, which was parked beside us. His arms were full of stuff, he threw his door open, it hit the side of our van, and, and hard enough that it rocked the vehicle. Um, and it was a warm day, I had the windows down, and I kind of looked, and I uh, put the stuff in the car, and he goes back to his shopping cart for something, and so I called out, and I, and I just said, would you mind taking your door off the side of my van? 
and um, he either didn't hear me or chose to ignore me uh, because nothing happened until he was ready to take his shopping cart back and he closed his door. Um, I didn't make anything more, anything more out of it. Like, like I just decided, I resolved two things. I resolved that I will forgive because an offense has been done against me. Um, and I resolved that in that choice to forgive, I will bear the consequence, the cost of the, the chip and the dent on the vehicle. Um, I, I use that as just a small analogy of a much bigger problem that is present in our world. And we start to see that problem if we extrapolate that out from just a little thing like a ding on your vehicle to something far more, far more consequential. Um, when, when sin occurs, a cost results. And, and if we envision it as a ledger, ledger sheet, uh, there, where there's a credit, there's got to be a debit. Um, There are always going to be two entries, and the question is, who will bear the cost of that offense? In my little analogy, I bear the cost of his offense. Extrapolate that out to something far more significant, far more serious, and we say, well, what about when the violation is is rape? Or, Or the violation is theft? Or the violation is murder. Who pays? Who pays the cost of that? Surely there's cost. We extrapolate that out to the utter extreme, to crimes against humanity. And in all of these things, there's something inside each one of us that demands that justice must be served, right? Like something heinous has taken place that's not okay. Evildoers, we resolve, we know, and we intuit this, evildoers must pay. They must be judged. Now, if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter one, um, I'm gonna put it on the screen. I'm gonna be referring to the New International Version if you're looking it up digitally. But we're going to Romans chapter one. We're talking about judgment, we're asking is it really necessary? Is judgment really necessary? And the Apostle Paul here, he's writing to the church in the capital city of the Roman Empire, the Church of Rome. Paul had never been to Rome at the point of writing this, uh, but he's writing to people, and, and the subject thus far in his letter is, is talking about people who sin, just like those ones I just described. And in Romans 1.18, he calls them godless and wicked people who suppress the truth about God by their wickedness. Let me just read it for you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And some of us hear that and we say it's about time. Like it's about time God stepped in and did something about the evil that's going on in our world, right? Now let's just jump down a few verses to verse 28 and listen to how Paul further described these people and then his description of their future. Romans 1, 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, 
deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Now, let me just read on into chapter two. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, sorry, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, they will, they will be, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every, human, for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. I know that's a lot, but isn't that fantastic news? Right? God does not show favoritism. Everyone gets what they deserve. Isn't that great news? Anyone here want to get what you deserve? I don't want to get what I deserve, friends. <laughs> oh my goodness, I don't want to get what I deserve. I look at that list, and if I'm being honest, I see myself in there. Like time and again, judgmental, sometimes insolent, way too often. Arrogant, yeah. Boastful, sometimes. Disobeying parents, sorry mom. I don't want justice, friends. I want mercy. And Paul's going to put it, if we were to read through the entirety of this letter that he wrote to the church in Rome, we would hear that good news. Like, like the story doesn't end here. We would hear that though Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. However, later in that same verse, the good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's fantastic. That is amazing news. 
But what about those who refuse it? They refuse to respond to the witness in nature. Paul talked about that just in the verses before us. Everyone is without excuse, he says. Because God's nature is evident in the world that he's created. There's enough there that should call us to attend to him. What if if they refuse those promptings that come from that friend who says, you know, I've been wondering. Have you ever wondered about? And we say, quiet. I don't want to think about that. It's too hard. And or they refuse that prompting that comes in in, in that, that quiet moment when God himself, they don't know him as such, but God himself says, psst. There's more to this life. As you, as you experience the splendor of the mountains or the, the beauty of the prairie fields or the ocean or the lake or, or the relationship with someone that you love, in all these things, psst, you need to attend to me. Because if you don't, there is disaster down the road. Please, attend to me. Turn to me and be saved. The reality is that justice demands judgment be rendered against sin. And Jesus warned about this over and over and over again. I mean, we like the Jesus tender, mercy, mild, kind, kids on his knee. He talked about hell and judgment, I think more than any other person. And his warning was that those who refuse will be judged. And the result is hell. What does the Bible say about hell? Let's just kind of review some passages of scripture here. Jesus warned about hell. He said it's real. It's a place of punishment. Fascinating to me is that he built on the the language that the, the Jewish scholars used to describe the afterlife. Jesus did an awful lot of correcting of the Jewish scholars, an awful lot of correcting of the rabbis and the, the scribes and the Pharisees. This was not one of them. He, he basically took the language they used and he built on it rather than correcting them. So that's, it's, it's instructive to us. And he uses words like this. He uses words like unending torment. He uses images like darkness, unquenchable fire, tears, Let's just start reading through some. Matthew 25, verse 30. Some of us were here recently. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Down a little further, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And I take encouragement for that. It was never intended for humanity. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46, a couple verses later. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's a fascinating parable recounted for us by Dr. Luke in Luke's gospel, chapter 16, where he tells us about a rich man and Lazarus. Now, now I'll just read it for you. It's probably the best way to do this. There was a rich man, so I'm in Matthew, sorry, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. <clears throat> there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Okay, this is giving us a little picture into Hebrew thought about the afterlife. Abraham's side, the place for the righteous dead. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment, okay, the, right, the unrighteous dead to a place called Hades, a, a holding place waiting for final, we're going to read about it in a minute in Revelation as well, okay? Abraham's side, Hades. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony there. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abram replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Terrible irony there, isn't there? You know, the one telling the story would rise from the dead and come back with witness and call. Jesus' close friend, the Apostle John, recounts God's words in Revelation 21, verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Dr. Millard Erickson, a scholar that I've respected for many years, uh, he writes this speaking about hell. If there is one basic characteristic of hell, it is in contrast to heaven. It's the absence of God or banishment from his presence. It is an experience of intense anguish, whether it involves physical suffering or mental distress or both. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and heaven fled from his presence, and there was no place for them, and I saw dead, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the, death, the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. These are images that the writers of scripture are are using to paint a a terrible landscape. And, and, And we might say, well, 
Surely some of this is metaphorical. I mean, how can darkness and fire, which creates light, exist in the same place? Whatever it is, it's, it's pointing us toward something that is very, very real. It's using the best, we saw this last week in, in talking about heaven. It's using the best language we have available to us to try to help us get a glimpse of something that is, quite frankly, inconceivable by us. Whatever it is, Jesus built on the language that the Hebrew scholars had used, and it's a picture of separation and isolation and suffering, and the picture calls out to us, stop, stop. There is something of vital, vital, imperative significance that must be attended to you now while you can. Look around at creation. Paul's been talking about it. It's inviting you to reflect on the one who created it. Listen to the prompting of that faith, that friend who says, you know, I've been wondering and, and, and I've been thinking that maybe and would you think with me? Listen to that friend. Listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. God himself, who's calling you and has been calling you since the, the day you were born to inquire more thoroughly to wonder more seriously about such things. Those of us who are followers of Jesus wonder about these things too. I mean, we don't want to think about them more often than we have to. But we wonder even, is it ever too late? I've heard, maybe you've heard from those who say, look, I'm too far gone. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how horrific my sin has been, it's just too much. Friends, if that's you, I would remind you that in the pages of the Gospels, Jesus himself sought out just people like you. Like he sought out very intentionally those who thought they were so far gone that there was no hope for them, and he said, come, follow me. And he's still issuing that invitation today. There's another group in an opposite extreme who are self-righteous. Can't conceive of the possibility that there would be any reason why God would not accept them because they're pretty good compared to... Sadly, it was to people like that that Jesus leveled his harshest and most strident rebukes. The religious people who said, look, I got it all figured out, I don't need Jesus. Our holy God demands a, a humble response, and, and I think for the self-righteous, that may be the most difficult person to say, I've been wrong. Uh, a holy God demands a humble response. He has done all the heavy lifting, he has made it possible, he's brought the gift, Romans 6.23, Receiving it requires an act of humility. I come in confession, you're right. I'm wrong. I've been sinning. We come in repentance. I want to walk a new way. 
Often the self-righteous response comes because we fail to recognize what it truly means for God to be holy, what it means for him to be set apart. We, we minimize his greatness and we minimize the heinousness of our own, our own sin. We, we minimize the, the, the spectacle of his great purity and, and we minimize the heinousness of our sin. If this stage were to represent holiness, um, and, and over here I were to put Adolf Hitler, can you imagine that? Okay, and, and I think you'll agree with me that and over there we'll put Jesus Christ, his goodness, his purity, his, his, his righteousness. So, so where on the, the spectrum of holiness would we place, how about the Apostle Paul? He wrote like half of the New Testament. Well, he says some things about this himself, and he would say, you're going to have to put me over there with Hitler in contrast, in comparison to, to the greatness, the spectacle, the wonder of who Jesus is. And so we're going to put Paul over there, consider some of the things that he says. He was the one that wrote Romans 1 and 2. He, just, he said the godless, wicked people who suppress the truth are going to be judged. He used language like gossip, slanderers, arrogant, boastful, those disobedient to parents. And he said they have no excuse. And Paul says, I'm one of them. In a letter he wrote, 1 Timothy 1 and 15, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. So that's where Paul has placed himself. So where do we place like really wonderful saints that maybe you've heard of or know, like Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe it was your mom or your dad that you'd say they were godly people. Well, in contrast to the greatness of Jesus, they're over there with Paul. Little too close for our comfort to Adolf Hitler. We like to mince words. I'm not as bad. I haven't done all those bad things. The wages of sin, what we've earned because of our sin, is death. And we tend to minimize the spectacle, the wonder of, 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 of forgiveness that's offered, but we've got to first recognize the expanse. Now listen to what Jesus himself said in Revelation 22, verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The spirit and the brides has come. Isn't that fantastic? Come! Let everyone who hears say, come! Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Will you come? Will you come? Will you turn to Jesus and be saved? It requires choice. A number of years ago, I was playing quite regularly music uh, with a fabulous musician who had been enthusiastic and, and, and always there, always on. And then something, something changed. Like one week, show, didn't show up for rehearsal on Wednesday, Thursday night, whatever it was. Um, started being kind of argumentative and evasive. 
Then one Sunday he didn't show up at all, which was never happened. I was worried, trying to reach out to him, all the means I had to try to reach out to him, couldn't find him, couldn't get a hold of him, no response, no response. A couple of days later, his sister called me. I said, is he okay? She said, um, no, he's, he's relapsed into a cocaine addiction. Um, and, and we're really concerned, so we're praying for him. We're... He had a Christian boss who was trying to intervene, giving him a lot of slack, trying to, would have none of it. Finally, the family reached out to me and said, look, we think an intervention is, is necessary. Would you, would you facilitate that? He respects you, he loves you. Um, I said, yeah. So I, I sought some counsel. I'd never done anything like that before and, and some coaching and, and managed a, a sofa conversation in his home with him. Um, and, and he said, there's, there's nothing wrong here. Like, like, you're just mistaken. Yes, yes, I'm using cocaine, but um, I'm fine. I can kick this whenever I want. I don't know. I, I don't want right now. Decisions are necessary if, if we're going to move from where we are. Uh, that decision to inactivity cost him his job, his car, his house, uh, all of his possessions, but more significantly it cost him uh, his relationship with his family uh, and his friends. The reality is that the humility necessary to say, yes, I need help, um, is, is a big step. And, and I don't want to minimize that. The warning that there's disaster ahead is strident and real. That's why Jesus and, and, and Paul and Peter repeated it. John repeated it over and over again. Yes, I have a problem. Yes, I need your help. And that is what I'm inviting you to say to Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Problem of Pain, he wrote this. I, willing, I willingly believe that the, the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that the ghosts may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy. But they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. Friends, would you submit to obedience? Would you turn to Jesus and be saved? Will you allow him to rescue you from such an eternity through the humility of saying, I need your help, Lord. I need you to cleanse me of my sin and I need you to forgive me and help me walk in a new way. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer that effectively says that. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and prepare to lead us in response. And maybe if you're in the house, if you would stand with me, you're welcome to stand at home as well. Can we make this a holy moment, friends? When we would just visit with God in prayer with some real honesty this morning, Bow with me if you would, please. Pray something like this in your heart. Speak this to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, 
I came or dialed in this morning with some curiosity. But now I want to move beyond wondering and into embracing you. Will you forgive my sin? You call it wickedness. The list in Romans is long and ugly. And I don't fully understand how you can love me given what you say about my sin. But I thank you. I thank you for loving me. I receive your forgiveness and your gift of love. Come and teach me how to walk with you, how to live for you, now and throughout eternity. I ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you want to dig into this further, Francis Chan, Preston Sprinkle, have written a book called Erasing Hell. I highly recommend it. I've ordered a copy for a church library. Don't know how fast it'll be here. But, but let me just read a quote from that that's speaking to us as the church. Somehow Paul was able to grieve and rejoice at the same time. This is the the tension we live with as followers of Jesus. We're thrilled to know Jesus and be saved from God's wrath, yet we are burdened for our loved ones who don't know him. In light of this truth and for the sake of people's eternal destiny, our lives and our church should be. No, they must be. Free from the bondage of sin full of selfless love that overflows for neighbors, the downcast, and the outsiders among us. In other words, we need to stop explaining away hell and start proclaiming God's solutions to it. 